whole sermon in front of me. And, uh, and thanks to Annika and the kids, they've enlightened us. So, Well, this last uh, couple of weeks, I had a chance to uh, get, a, get a chance to uh, go to a conference in Green Lake, Wisconsin, where uh, we continued the further training of what it means to revitalize, refresh, retool any church situation in the United States. And we wanted to make it certainly applicable to the international scene as well. And it was a follow, it was wonderful. A lot of great things, a lot of great men, a lot of great leaders were there. And then afterwards, I got a chance just to take a few days, just a little bit of an R&R, of meeting up with uh, many of the guys that I played football and basketball with in high school. And we had a barbecue and golf weekend. Now, I can tell you that after 51 years of being graduated from high school, that the stories that surrounded our football exploits have moved from fact to legend. <laughs> I don't recall half of those incidences, but boy, did they sound good. Uh, many of the guys remember me as being fast, and, and I wasn't. The coach used to put taillights on me because I'd come in after dark. Uh, but to hear that they thought I was fast was amazing. I was the only guy who had to pace myself in a 100-yard dash. Uh, but it was wonderful to be back and to be with these men and to look back. But the most exciting thing to me was my locker partner. We didn't have enough lockers in the high school. We had to share a locker with somebody. And my locker partner, who was the actually was very fast, had the state record at the 100-yard dash of 9.8. I know that's been broken now. But at that time, that was pretty fast. And uh, top man on campus, but doesn't know the Lord. And in that golf court that morning, on a Saturday morning, Larry understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can only think 51 years it took for someone to reach out. Now, at that time, when I was in high school, I was not really living for Christ, even though my dad was a pastor. And, uh, you know, being a teenager was tough in school. Try being a PK in school and trying to run with the in crowd. It's not, it's not easy. I felt like I led three different lives. And then Monday morning, sitting in the cart with another guy by the name of Dan, who was one of my good friends there. And Dan heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to see those guys in heaven. I think that you probably have people in your life that you hope someday they will, they will take that moment, that just that, that twinkling of an eye moment when their destinies are changed from on their way to a Christless eternity to where they're going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. And it can happen in the twinkling of an eye. Their eyes are opened and they begin to see. Now this morning, we are going to embark upon a wonderful series in the next eight weeks. Uh, these, this series is on the Beatitudes, and I'm going to explain that in just a moment. But this series is going to be a capitulation of eight statements that literally practically summarize the entire New Testament. You get a hold of these eight statements, folks, you'll understand your Bible a lot better. 
I don't mean to think that, you know, you come to one of my lectures or one of my sermons and all of a sudden everything's cleared up. That's not what I'm saying. But I believe that what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount was to let his disciples know exactly what life in the kingdom was going to be like now that the kingdom of God had broken in to this world. What they could expect. What the attitude that had to be in them. Attitudes that should be in you. In chapter 4, Jesus is uh, concerned. And he takes his disciples up into the Israeli hills. Not like the hills of, of Dillon. Or this area. With the beautiful mountains and the lake and everything else. These were Israeli hills. These were a little tougher. For those of you who have been there, you know that that's probably why he had 12 disciples. Because if he had taken them to the Dillon Hills, he probably had 150. But he was concerned that they were not really getting the picture. He had had trouble with his own group of following him. Many people had even left. Even in John chapter 6, we read that some of the people that were following him left him. And our setting is quite an interesting one. And Jesus brings them up into these hills and he sits them down and he begins to teach. But what's really interesting to me is if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 24. And it says, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the flood waters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like the person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. What's he talking about? He's talking about what just came previous, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to build a house, and, and, and the rains are going to come, and the floodwaters are going to rise, I want to make sure that that thing's going to stand. And, and yet Jesus is describing society. And I think that's the best way we could describe our society today as fallen. Fallen homes, fallen marriages, fallen societies, fallen governments. It's almost like they were built on sand. You who've been sitting here and married for more than 30, 40 years, you have committed your life to building that marriage on a rock. You who are sitting here contemplating marriage, you want to make sure that when you say I do and that other person standing next to you says I do, it means I do and I will stay married to you the rest of my life. I'm only going to do this once. That's the desire in all of our hearts. I want to build it on the rock. It was interesting, there was, was an article not too long ago in a California paper saying, Wanted, genius egg. It was a, a sperm donor, wanted, but he had to be a genius. The qualifications in the paper said, straight A student, near perfect SAT. <laughs> That's nice, you're cutting a little slack on the SAT. But basically, I wanted a genius egg. We want to start our family, we want to build it solid. So that the hope is that this child will be able to go to the same universities mom and dad did. Or even better. Quite frankly, I don't know if I would ever want to be a child in that family. 
And Jesus says, if you ignore this, you're like the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. Uh, folks, I, I, if I met you after, the word, after church and we had a conversation and I called you a sinner, uh, you, you'd maybe be a little upset, but you'd give me a little grace. Because you know you are. And you know I am too. If I called you a hypocrite, you might be a little taken back, but you'd probably give me a little more slack. You'd say, okay, you know, Dr. G gets at least a little grace there. But let me tell you something. If somebody comes up and says, you're a fool, that's offensive. That, that's just flat offensive. We tend to kind of say, you know, you and I need to part company. And Jesus is saying that those of us who build our houses on sand are fools. Uh, this is a powerful series, and, and, and I want to just kind of give you one of those little uh, heads up. These next eight weeks are, are not going to be light. This, is going, this, won't, be, this won't be sermon light this, these next eight weeks. You're going to have to get into your Bible. You're going to have to stay here. And sometimes some of the words are going to come across and they're going to sound a little bit strong. They're not meant to offend. They're meant to get to the root of the depth of this thing. And so I, I, I right now, if you put your seatbelts on, strap yourself in for a, about 30 more minutes. We're going to do this. And Jesus was concerned. And the reason he took his disciples up there, because I think people were following him for the wrong reasons. They thought maybe this was going to be a new hoot, a new kick. And they could just kind of come along. And, and Jesus is saying, oh, no, 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 no. I want you to understand really what's going to happen now that my kingdom is here and how this is going to invade society and what you can expect. In fact, I'm going to tell you, there are eight statements we're going to look at, gentlemen. And those eight statements, seven of those are going to be character traits within your life. And the last beatitude is the reaction of the world towards somebody who's got those first seven in their life. And frankly, they don't like a person like that. It's going to be tough. That's why Jesus even had a little trouble with some of the, of the people who followed him. They left, some of them left because they finally did figure out this is going to be easy. And I think even today, some of us preachers are in the same boat. We want bigger churches. We want bigger crowds. And so we, we try to make it easy for people to follow Jesus. And I talked about that two weeks ago, about the inauthentic Christianity and the authentic Christianity. You've made a decision to come this morning. You've made a decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, this is the, the quintessential, this is the cum laude of everything there is in Scripture, what Jesus intended for you to know of what happens when His kingdom broke into this world. What you can expect of the attitudes that need to be in you and what the world's action and reaction is going to be to those who have those first seven attitudes in their life. He wants you to heed His words. Now the Beatitudes have an interesting flavor to them. The Beatitude itself, blessed are the... And we're going to look at poor in spirit today. And then next week we'll look at blessed are those that mourn and so forth. That is what I would call the seed. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, He gives a larger explanation in the Sermon on the Mount itself, which is more of the flower. So you have kind of a seed-flower relationship. The Beatitude is a seed, and then later in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's more of an explanation of what that means. So for the next few weeks, I would like for you 
to take Matthew 5 through 7 and read it through at least 10 times. Slowly, carefully. If you have commentaries, use them. Pray over this passage. I trust that God will speak to you like He's never spoken before. I can honestly say there are two passages in the Bible that have brought forth revivals throughout the world. For those of you who know J. Edwin Orr, he was one of the top persons in the, in, on the history and documentation of all revivals that have happened since, since the first century. He said there are two books in the Bible, two passages that have led to more revivals than anything else. It's the book of Romans. And number two, it is the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. I feel that maybe the inverse of that theory could be true. With a better understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe revival might break out. In Matthew 5, 1, we read, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this first beatitude is an important one because it reveals the basis upon which God will work in our lives. Now Annika told us about blessed. It's actually the Greek word makarios, which actually does not necessarily mean happy. It means it can mean happy, but much, much more. Blessed or makarios is a word that, that literally says fulfilled and enriched. And uh, it's a person who wants all the gusto and life that there is to get. This is the person who is really blessed. So it can mean a little bit of happy, but it's, it's much, much more than that. It is a person who is completely fulfilled. Jesus said, I come to give you life and I come to give it to you what? Abundantly. Blessed, fulfilled to the max with every bit of gusto there is. Now, interesting, he says, this is the condition by which I work on. And that condition is that as we're going to look at the Beatitudes, and we're going to take a look, and we're going to call this area over here the poor in spirit area, because we're going to be going that way, and that's going to be the reaction of the world way down there towards these seven attitudes as we build. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Fulfilled are the people, living the life to the max, are the people who understand what it means to be poor in spirit. And right away we're kind of left with kind of a dichotomy. We're kind of left with kind of a, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Uh, the world's beatitudes would be something else, like blessed is the person who is not poor in spirit, but enriched in his own self-identity. No, Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And then the final part of the beatitude is the promise, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What in the world is he saying? Well, there are two Greek words for poor. One word is that's used is, you know, I'm really poor, but I have a little. I'm not quite destitute. I'm poor, and I, I, I don't have much, and I, sometimes I just am a, I'm, I'm short on my, my payments for my bills. I, I can't quite make it. Sometimes people take advantage of being poor, or they think it's really holy to be poor. We have even one monastery that, that just believes that, you know, that if you're going to be godly, you need to be, you need to be really poor. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about a bad attitude either. Like, boy, we really had, we had like in high school, you know, you have a, a pep rally or a spirit rally. He's not talking about blessed are those who've got a bad attitude. No, he's not talking about that. 
He's not talking about people who are poor financially. He's talking about people who are poor in spirit. The second Greek word is mean means destitute. And that's the word he uses here. He uses it also in the, in the Gospel of Luke when he talks about Lazarus, when he was a beggar. He talks, he, he talks about the fact that he had nothing. Why does he want that? Because he wants you to understand that nobody struts in the presence of God. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Sometimes we pray, Lord, I know I'm bad, but, you know, I'm not that bad. <laughs> Like the rich young ruler. I've, I've, I've kept all the commandments since I was a boy. Jesus' words to the rich young ruler were not very helpful. God says, when you come into my presence, you are a beggar. You have nothing to offer me. But I have everything to offer you. Now listen to me, my dearest friends. This is the basis of all salvation. These eight statements summarize the entire point of salvation history. They're our entire doctrine. This is the whole point of when you and I came to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we repented from. We did not repent because we did some bad acts. We can repent for that, but that's, that's partial repentance. The real repentance God is looking for is for us to repent from an attitude that says, God, I'll tell you what, I'm kind of passively indifferent. You leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. I'll be a good guy, you be a good guy, and you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll see each other later in heaven. What God says, I want you to understand that apart from me, you're lost. And what I want you to repent from is this attitude that says, you don't need me. That you can make it, that you think you can earn your way in any situation into my presence. I'm sorry, that doesn't go. You have nothing to offer me spiritually. I have everything to offer you. You see, we're, we're sinners not because we do an act of sin. We're sinners because our nature is sinful. The sinful acts just prove that we already are a sinner. We already are fallen in our humanity. And we need God desperately. And for anyone in our room today, and this is where you've got to strap that seatbelt down a little bit. If you came to Christ under any other pretense, if you came to Christ in any situation thinking, thinking that you could earn your way in any situation, thinking you had something to offer God, let me tell you this morning, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. Now, if we could just turn those cell phones off, I would really appreciate it if we could do that. Who's ever got that? That would be great. Thanks. But we, we, we just come to a point in our life where, where we have this kind of reason and, and meaning in our life where we say to ourselves, you know, Lord Jesus, I, I have repented. I remember the day I accepted you as my Savior. I repented from the, the way I was living my life. The fact that I, 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 I turned, uh, you know, I, I, I said I was sorry for that, that drunken night, and I said I was sorry for the, the time that I had, you know, uh, uh, you know illicit sex, and I, I'm sorry for the time that I, I took the drugs, and I'm sorry for the time that I beat up that kid, and I'm sorry for the anger and all that. You know, I think that's wonderful. But the repentance that God is looking for is that point where you stand before Him and saying, God, I am a beggar spiritually. I have nothing to offer you. Not a thing. And if I don't get to that point in my life, I have missed blessedness. I've missed it. God, you have everything to offer me. Spiritually, I have nothing to offer you. I know we sing that hymn, How can I do less than give him my best? 
Well, your best isn't good enough. I don't even, I, I'm even questioning whether that's even a theologically right written hymn. It drives me nuts sometimes looking at some of the, the hymnody that we sing and some of the other of the hymnody is so blessed and wonderful and right on target. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That couldn't be, that couldn't be more perfect. Your best is not good enough. Jesus judged it 2,000 years ago when he died for the flesh and says, I don't want anything in the flesh. You see, nobody struts in my presence and the only basis by which I accept you into my heaven is based on my righteousness, not yours. That's why my son came, died for you, and he gave you my righteousness. That's the righteousness that you stand before God. It is his righteousness in your life. Now, there are three things that a beggar knows. Number one, he is conscious of his need. That's why he's begging. That's what gets us to our need for God. Jesus is saying, you're absolutely destitute. You have nothing to offer God at all. In front of God, you have nothing to offer him spiritually. Now, I said that the, 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 the beatitude was the seed. Here comes the flower. If you look down in the passage in verse, verse 20 of chapter 5, it says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anybody who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out and throw it away it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell and if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell (laughs) this is amazing he says you've heard it said of old but i say unto you what's he mean by that he's saying i know the rabbis like rabbi akiva Akiva, Rabbi, you know, uh, some of the other rabbis, Hillel, whatever, have said unto you. But, but, but Jesus said, they're wrong. Now listen to me. I say unto you. That's what made this crazy Sanhedrin so mad. That's why they wanted to get rid of him. He said, you've heard it said of old. No, but now I say, here I'm coming with the real truth. And what's the truth in this passage? Well, they were just amazed at his authority. They, 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 weren't, they weren't talking about his voice control here, about how hard he could shout or how hard he could talk. They were talking about the fact that he was authoritative. And he said, when a beggar is conscious of his need, he understands that his religion doesn't go deep enough. In 521, it says, you heard that he said long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I tell you that if you're angry with your brother, you're deserving of hell itself. So what's the point here at this point? What's the point of this whole issue? He's saying that, look, I don't necessarily judge Christianity on the basis of your actions. Now, hang on to this for a moment, because this is going to be maybe a little rough here. I don't necessarily judge on actions. This is why the book of James is so critical. Why it was the last book to be accepted into the New Testament, because there was a war over this book in Christianity. Christianity. Christianity, God says, is not, my spirituality is not judged upon your actions. It's judged upon the intentions of your heart. I judge the heart. I look and you say, well, I've never killed anybody. Yeah, you ever wanted to? I didn't commit adultery. Yeah, but have you ever wanted to? 
If we were judged on the desires of our heart, everyone in this room would be guilty, including me. You see, because your Christianity, your religion, doesn't go deep enough. Boy, you can just imagine how Israel's reacting to this. Uh, They're really upset. I don't know, maybe you're upset this morning. Maybe you're thinking that, boy, I, I, I have, I, I've done my work here. I, I feed the homeless. I take care of, of things. He's not talking about the wonderful actions we're doing. I'm glad we've got a food bank. I'm glad we're feeding the people in the Summit County. I'm glad we're going to work with uh, kids. And, and That's wonderful. But that work will never save you. That work is a result of me understanding I have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer me. It's the basis of what happens when the kingdom broke into this world. All of a sudden, it was not based on even my actions. It even went to the desires and the depth of my heart. It even goes to that point because that's the part where I've got to stand over here in this spirit, poor in spirit area and I've got to say to God, God, I'm coming to you. I have nothing. But I understand that you love me and you died for me and you've given me eternal life. I humbly accept that and I repent from any attitude, whether it's passive indifference or it's active rebellion, and say to you, God, I am a beggar and I am in need of everything that you have for me. And if that's not the basis of your salvation, then you haven't any. I love being the interim. I thought you needed a little break there. (laughs) Nobody struts in the presence of God. If I could, if if the past could shout out where Gene Sealander's been in his life. And I can tell you that when I was 11 years old, I got down by my dad's bedside. We thought he was going to die, and I wanted to see my dad in heaven. That's why I accepted Christ, because I wanted to see my dad in heaven. That's good for a little 11-year-old kid. That's all he knows at that point. I didn't know I was a beggar spiritually. For the next 10 years, I tried to kind of live in a strobe light period of my life, you know, alternating times of light and darkness in my life. It was a struggle. Then one day at the age of 22, I heard a man's preach in California and said, no one can live the Christ Christian life, only Jesus. And it comes when you get to a point in your life where you understand you have nothing to offer God. He doesn't want your flesh. He wants Christ in you, the hope of glory revealed. It was a new day for me. I can understand with the Apostle Paul what he meant by, I can't even get past Jesus and Him crucified. Because everything is about that. Not only does he say your religion isn't deep enough, he says it, is, it doesn't even go far enough. Look at verse 40 of chapter 5. If anyone, someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have the cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, how many should go with them? Two. He says, your religion doesn't even go deep enough, and it doesn't even go far enough. We do the bare minimums, don't we? 
We do enough sometimes in our circles to look like we're Christian and look like we've done the right thing. We volunteer for just so many committees. We volunteered for so many actions. I'm not poo-pooing that. I, we need elders. We need Sunday school teachers. We need workers. We need youth people. All of that's well and good. But the point is, does it start at the basis? Or it starts at my brokenness. It starts with me understanding, God, I am destitute. I have nothing to offer you spiritually. You have everything to offer me. That's the point of the beginning. If the world wants to run its beatitudes itself, oh, pride yourself in your self-identity. You're something. You're a miracle. You're wonderful. Let me tell you something. All of that may be true in terms of some actions in our life, but don't get confused. That is not what saves you. That's not what gives you blessedness. That's not what gives you makarios. The beginning of makarios is coming to a point where God has given you everything. And where we sing with authority like we did two weeks ago, you are my all in all. All to Jesus I surrender. Yeah. Good chorus this morning. He has made me glad. I didn't make me glad. You didn't make me glad. This church doesn't make me glad. Oh, it can make me happy at times, and that's why I say Macarius is a lot more than happiness. I begin my journey of complete understanding of the abundant life when I come to the point where I understand I've got nothing. He's got everything. And then he says, even in verse 48, your religion doesn't go high enough. Look at that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, nice. Thanks for dropping that one in. Now, we understand the Greek word here means mature to some degree. But the point is, God judges on the basis of the character of his character and his character is perfection and we fall short that makes us beggars that makes us and i know maybe sometimes you don't like that word i love that word so we're going to use that word i i i'm destitute spiritually i have nothing to offer him and 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 the realization of that is so opposite to what the world teaches. And when I get to that point in my life, I think, this is the beginning of Macarius? This is the beginning of a filled life? This is, this, is, this is the beginning of a life that says, I'm going for everything in life there is? Yeah. Sorry, it's not in some of the advertisements. Wall Street tries to tell you, if you use a certain deodorant, you'll be a chick magnet. If you drink a certain beer, that's it. You're in, the, you're in, you're in, you're in it. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life. And you might have it dependently. Well, we've got to move along here. Second characteristic of a beggar is not only that he's conscious of his need, but secondly, and I'll just lose these last two quickly, he's dependent upon others for his living. Huh. I remember one time in Muskegon, Michigan, back where I was just at, the parsonage was right next to the church, and one day a beggar came to our door. A real live, honest to God beggar, and he knocked on the back door. And you, if you knew my mom, she was um, as close to a saint as I ever knew. She was one delightful lady. I, I, I she died young. Uh, well, she died when she was seventy-three, and that's too young. 
I wasn't through with her life yet. I, I wanted more of my mom. I, she was a wonderful lady. She was so kind, so gracious. And I could see what she was doing. She was fixing a plate of food for the guy. She was going to come out. But, you know, we looked at that guy. And I, I went, you know, like a young kid. I peered through, wanted to see what he looked like. His shoes were, had no laces in them. They smelled bad. He, he had, oh, I don't know, the coat he had on, he must have had on for years. It was beat up. I mean, it looked bad. He was a real beggar. He looked like it. He, he was absolutely right on target with this, that he was dependent on others for his living. And, and, and I remember mom giving a plate of food. He, boy, was he thankful. Whoa. Now, if some guy had come to the back of our door, and he drove up in a Mercedes, and he's wearing, you know, gold cup socks, Brazzini ties, you know, beautiful, you know, Hark Schaffner and Mark suits, and said, I'm a beggar, we might have a hard time believing that. Because beggars don't dress like that. Sometimes we put on those cloaks of spirituality, you know, like, boy, when God saved me, did he get a deal? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, he is so fortunate to have me in the kingdom. I mean, I can preach, I can sing, I can dance. Uh, this is going to be fun. God, what are we going to do? Well, the first thing we're going to do is take you down a couple pegs and get you to the point where you understand that everything's coming from me and nothing's coming from you. Oh. The third thing that a beggar knows, he's honest about his condition or he will starve. And here's the point. We need to be honest about our condition or we will not understand eternal life because it is he who is poor in spirit, blessed is he who is poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Kingdom of God. Okay, ease off on the seatbelt just a little. I hope you know I can talk like this because I really do not just love you, I, can, I like you. I've been through this journey and some of you who are a little older out there, you're nodding your head and saying, you're in your 80s and 90s and you're already calling me a young man. And you're saying, that's it, Pastor. Let them know. Let them know that the journey begins with, in blessedness by coming to the point where we understand we are poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer us. Everything. Has that been the point for you? If it isn't, then listen. Look at me right here. We're going to pray out loud. We're going to look at each other while, we're, while I'm praying. If you need to be sure this morning, now I know many of you are absolutely certain of your salvation, and this prayer is not for you. If you're certain of your salvation, you be praying for those who aren't then. But if today you're in this audience and you have not accepted Jesus on the basis of the fact that you have not repented from the fact that you think you have something to offer him, then today I want you to do that. I want you to make sure today that this is the day you walked out, September 16th, 2012. And I know, I'm absolutely positive, that today I came to a point in my life where I knew that before God, I don't have anything to offer Him. I'm a broken person. He has everything to offer me. And God, I'm so sorry for even thinking that I could have played any part in my salvation. 
Now, please, Lord, keep that at the basis of my life. Make sure I understand that on a daily basis. You are my all in all. For me, that led to a revival in my life. And I want that for you. I want blessedness for you. I want joy, abounding joy. I want you to have everything that God wants to give you. I'm asking you this morning, get out of the way. Come humbly, honestly, and bow before him. I love that chorus we sing sometimes. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you did that in your morning devotions? Oh, Jesus. I am just a wretched sinner. I'm just a beggar before you. How great is your grace to me. That you would take me who has nothing and take me from being a sinner and making me a saint. Yes, a saint. That's why Paul addressed all his letters to the saints. <laughs> well, I don't think of myself as a saint. Well, you know what? Neither do I. Neither do some people around you. But God looks at you that way because he sees Jesus in you. Isn't that marvelous? Are you getting this? Pour in spirit. Now, let me give you a taste. Let me tell you a taste because next week, this train's going this way. Going right for the bass guitar. That's where we're going. Okay? <laughs> Pour in spirit. Now, these beatitudes are built on one another. Don't miss next week. This is a key. Because he says, blessed are those who what? Mourn. You see, when you come to a point where you realize you have nothing to offer God and he has everything to offer you, what does it do to you? It breaks your heart. Don't you just think that's so much fun to come next week? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we can't wait for next week. This is going to be exciting. Because this is not just our story. This is your story. This is the story and history of salvation. May you be praised and may all of us this week take a good, tough look at our life. And if there's anything in any area where we think we're the, we're the star and we're the hero, oh God, rid us of that and understand that apart from you, we can do nothing. But in you... We can do everything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, God, make that more than just a scripture verse. Make that the reality of Dylan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.